Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today on the Everything 80s Podcast, we're looking at the best of the 1980s in 2020. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of the topics related to the 1980s that I found the most interesting through 2020. It's stuff I've covered on my blog, everything80spodcast.com. I've covered on the show. So we're going to look at a handful of these things. We're going to take a look at a book sequel that was almost 10 years in the making. And we're going to look at a TV series and the return of a beloved character. And you probably know already what I'm talking about. So we'll get to all that in a sec. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. I also want to give a shout out to the Patreon of the week, Vince, a.k.a. Space Ranger 74. Thank you for your support. And if you're not sure what Patreon is, this is just my quick little message on that. So this is an independently produced podcast. It's just me. And these days, podcasts are great, but it's tougher now to compete with these huge companies and celebrities and massive podcast networks. So I use this thing called patreon.com and it's a way to support the show for, you know, only a few bucks a month, but then you also get bonuses like audio bonuses for doing so. And there's different tiers you can join and with different tiers come different levels, you know, with the um, Boba Fett level, it gets you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club where I review um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the 1980s movies, you know, just for Patreon. So um, if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash 80s, 80s, or whatever you're listening on. Uh, there should be a link there just if you want to see some more. Okay, let's get to it. So the first topic I want to look at is this really kind of bizarre story of how Captain Crunch cereal led to Apple computers. Um, if you've heard this episode or heard me talk about it before, you're probably a little familiar. But this is a story that goes back into the 70s, also into the 80s. And um, it has to do with a random toy. It was this Captain Crunch bosun whistle, which was in these uh, boxes way back of Captain Crunch cereal. So the interesting thing with this whistle is it made a specific tone and this leads us to a group called the freakers and they were these phone hackers this was before you had computer hacking per se so they would hack into phones and phone lines to make long distance phone calls so the thing with this uh, boast on whistle because it made a specific tone it could sort of hijack the phone signal and you could start making long distance phone calls and uh, that gave rise to the freakers and all this sort of stuff. And this thing got so big that there was an article in Esquire magazine about the freaker movement and these little boxes that they had created that could, you know, bypass the phone signals and make them for free. 
So this article's in the, um, the magazine and a mother in Berkeley, California happens to see it and thought it would interest her electronics obsessed son. And that turned out to be Steve Wozniak. So he freaked out about this article. He loved it. And he showed it to a friend of his named Steve Jobs. This really psyched them. And this whole freakers movement really encouraged them to sort of do their own thing and, and sort of take advantage of uh, this new technology and everything like that. So they both come up with what they called the blue box, which was their invention to, you know, hook onto phones and to bypass the signals and using these digital tones and everything. And this is really the foundation for Apple computers. You know, Jobs got all the components together to make the blue box. And um, he, really foreshadowed what Apple would become because Wozniak was sort of like, they were both the brains, but he was like sort of the technical master behind creating this thing. And Jobs was the one with the vision and the idea. And then also that they could sell these things. They made these blue boxes for around 40 bucks and they sold them for 150. And that really cemented that they had the ideal partnership because of that combination of both their strengths. So, you know, then that led to 1975 and um, Wozniak coming up with something a little different for uh, um, computers at the time. What he did was he created a motherboard that connected to a monitor. And when he typed a letter on the keyboard, it showed up on the screen. And this is where Apple computers fully moves into their next sort of phase. And that was the basis for the Apple One. And it was, you know, creating that basically like a home kit that you would put together. And then from there, they gave themselves the name Apple. And that led to, you know, the Apple II and then the Mac and then the iPod and the iPhone and everything like that. So it's it's really amazing. If you've read the book, uh, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, it's one of the best biographies out there on this crazy but incredible man and the interesting thing is we look back now if it wasn't for captain crunch cereal and that little whistle we probably wouldn't have had apple and wozniak claims like in the book he said if it hadn't been for the blue boxes there wouldn't have been an apple and then steve jobs backed this up saying he was 100 percent sure there wouldn't have been an apple without the blue box and it was all because of this little toy in a cereal the next thing i want to cover is the great Michael Keaton backlash of 1988. And this is pretty relevant because there's always been these sort of moments where there's, you know, there's so many Batman movies and it's introduced who's going to play Batman and it's happening right now again. And with mentions that Michael Keaton will be potentially again involved in Batman, I'm not sure how it's all going to work. But if you, depending how old you are, if you grew up during this time, you remember the backlash that happened when they chose uh, Michael Keaton to play Batman. And this is kind of a combination of looking at how superhero movies really evolved into what they are. And then, you know, what the power of, of the fans can really do. So, you know, of course, it seems ridiculous now, but, you know, superhero movies weren't a guaranteed thing. And a lot of studios actually frowned on them. The big difference was like when Superman came out in 1978, it was seen as a very big gamble to be released by a uh, major motion studio. And, but the movie did amazingly well. Um, it 
you know, sort of changed everybody's, everyone's idea of what a superhero movie could be. It had um, Marlon Brando in it and Christopher Reeves, and he was perfect as Superman, and the technology was really good, and everything was a massive hit. Um, so it looks like everything would be fine, but then the Superman sequels come out, and they're brutal, and they kind of take the whole thing downhill really quickly, and then comic book movies were kind of back where they started, and no one wanted to touch them. And as far as Batman goes, um, the, the story of wanting to make a Batman movie goes back almost as far as the original Superman. And it starts with a guy named Michael Uslan. I'm not sure if it's Uslan or whatever. He was a comic book fan and an aspiring producer, and he bought the film rights to Batman in the late 70s. And he was pitching the idea of a Batman movie. Um, of course, it was getting rejected left and right. Uh, if the Superman movie was going to be like pulling teeth, no one was going to touch Batman. And the big problem is Batman had this Adam West campy Batman version always attached to it. And the studios just said, this is a dead idea. Forget about it. But he had this one idea. He thought, what if instead of the cartoony campy approach, he went in the complete opposite direction? What about a dark and really serious movie? And that had never been done before. And this could be a real new way to sort of create comic book based entertainment together. So he um, brings on board Tim Burton and this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the success of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But that was so good that Tim Burton had a little bit more of um, more clout now and he, you know, could make the movies he wanted. But he wasn't seen as a comic book guy per se. And they're not sure if he had the sort of the vision to bring this new version of Batman to the big screen. But eventually they got him on board and the the vision they both had the same vision ultimately. And Tim Burton's obviously this sort of dark, intense guy. And that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted this shadowy, gritty, psychologically deep movie. And the thing with Batman is these movies aren't as much, especially the, these original Tim Burton ones, they're not as much about Batman. They're more about Bruce Wayne. He's the one with the dark and damaged past. And that's what develops into the vigilante of Batman. So now they're deciding they need someone to play Bruce Wayne more than they need Batman. They don't just need this big ripped superhero type guy. They needed someone who could sort of capture this darkness and whatever. And then, you know, now they've landed Jack Nicholson to play the Joker. This is massive. So how are they going to get someone to like match him and play across from him? So Tim Burton had made Beetlejuice and you know, he, at that time he was working on a script for Batman and, and everything like that. And of course, um, through Beetlejuice, we had Michael Keaton, who Beetlejuice was originally going to be played by, believe it or not, Sammy Davis Jr. But a bunch of things happened that got Michael Keaton put in the role. So now Burton is convinced this is the guy to play it, but everyone is against it. Um, you know, it, the original Batman is this study of Bruce Wayne and, and Michael Keaton, he was great in Beetlejuice, but it's more of a comedic role and he'd had other past comedic roles. And plus everyone you've ever heard of was sort of up for the role, but he stuck with it. And then everyone goes nuts. The studio hated the idea. Um, the producers hated the idea. The purists, the comic book fans despised the idea of Michael Keaton playing Batman. And they really were vocal about it. And if you could, if the internet existed back then, it would have melted at the time. The only thing they could do were actual protests and then 
letter writing campaigns. And it got so bad that Warner Brothers received 50,000 letters of protest over the casting choice of Michael Keaton. Um, But obviously, once they apparently the first day on set, they did the scene where he um, he's you know, the opening scene where he's holding the, that bad guy over the ledge and says, I am Batman. Originally he was supposed to say, when the guy goes, who are you? He was supposed to say, I am the knight and Michael Keaton, Keaton improv just I'm Batman. And when they saw that footage, they immediately knew this was going to work and he was the right guy for it. And then obviously once the movie came out, it was a gigantic success. It sort of redefined what a blockbuster could be, but the initial backlash was pretty amazing. I remember it so well. I remember thinking the same thing too. It's like, this guy can't play Batman. He's like five foot nine and whatever, but pretty interesting story. Okay. So now I want to look at ready player two, and I'm not sure if you've read this already. If you're a fan of the eighties and of the movie, I'm sure you are all over it. I got it the day it came out. I'll, Try not to make it spoilerish here because I understand with books it can take a little while to get around them compared to like TV series and movies. But for my quick review, I really think, I mean, the expectations on a book like this, like I said, it was 10 years in the making. The original Ready Player One came out in 2011. And it's so hard to live up to the hype and the expectations of how great the original book was. But I really think this captured it completely. And if not improved on the original with the journey back into the Oasis and how there was a whole second um, quest that how they created and the idea of artificial intelligence and what that can really be and what that can turn into and whether it gets out of control. These aren't necessarily spoilers per se, but I thought this book went even deep. I was afraid it was going to be a little bit more of uh, too much of a screenplay, like he was going to write it with a movie in mind. Not that that's bad, but I did a whole episode comparing Ready, Ready Player One, the book and the movie. And of course, a movie can never capture what a book does because you've got two hours to tell the story where a book is, you know, take takes place over however long and however long it takes you to read it. You can flesh out everything. So to me, the movie... Ready Player One is was more of like a tribute to the book as opposed to like a recreation of it. So I thought Ernest Klein might be writing it more with the screenplay in mind, you know, trying to like uh, appeal to Steven Spielberg and, you know, convince him to make this sequel. But it really wasn't. I thought Ready Player Two goes even deeper into like real nerd geek culture, like stuff I'd never heard of. I had to like look it up. Um deep references and and scenes that he wrote in the book, which would never ever be able to happen in a movie. There's just, again, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a big part of the book involving a musical artist that will never be able to happen for legal reasons and copyright reasons. And then the big ultimate sort of final of the book where they go into a different land and time. And again, for all those reasons, I can't see this ever being able able to be recreated in a movie. And that makes it to me amazing because it makes the book more unique. And it feels like Ready Player Two feels like what Ernest Klein wanted to do with Ready Player One, the first book, but didn't maybe either have the confidence 
um, to do this as a relatively new author. And with this, it, it feels like he's like, screw it. This is everything I ever dreamed of wanting to write and create into a magical world. Uh, the thing I love in it too, that he does this thing where while they're now in the Oasis, they're called, I think they're called, uh, audio drops or record cues or whatever. So anytime they go into a situation, uh, and they're visiting an artificial world or, or whatever, there's these music cues that, uh, play along. So he just lists them and whatever. And, you know, this is a book you need to read with your phone by you. So you can, you know, quickly look up these songs because they perfectly capture the tone. And he uses, uses a bunch in the first book, but there are so many in this one. And it really sort of, again, captures and creates this even better environment. So to me, it was awesome. I mean, I've, I've only read it once since it came out and I've read the first one at least six or seven times. So I need to read it a few more times again and see how it holds up in that matter. But that was one of the best 1980s related things in 2020. If you haven't read it already, definitely check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, the next best 1980s thing, it, you, you won't believe this, but this is one of the things I found most interesting this year that I covered on the show and on the blog, and it's the story of Chicken McNuggets, believe it or not. And the first thing, I never realized they were a 1980s creation. They started in, I mean, technically 1981, but were fully launched in 1983. I always thought they were something that went back to the 60s or whatnot. Um, but the story starts in the late seventies with a, a company called Keystone foods. And they had this idea for a small, like bite size piece of processed chicken wrapped in batter, um, and deep fried. And it was thought of by just this guy who ran this, um, food company. And they were ones that were providing the frozen burgers to McDonald's in the sixties. And he, you know, just one of those guys that had the foresight to come up with something like that. So the thing that I thought was most amazing about this is the actual McNuggets were created by a high-end French chef named Rene Arand. And he was the first executive chef that McDonald's ever used. And they hired him to give a little more design to their foods. And he claims that Chicken McNuggets were his greatest creation. This guy had cooked all over the world. He cooked for royalty. He cooked for celebrities. He was a personal chef for like Cary Grant, Sophia Loren. He cooked for the King of Belgium. He said these were his greatest thing because the meals that he did for these high-end people he called were once-in-a-lifetime dinners and they were long forgotten. But he said Chicken McNuggets will, be, uh, will go on long after I am gone. So he was passionate about creating the best 
tasting, even though it was fast food, he wanted to make the best tasting product possible. And even though he was working with very limited quality, low quality ingredients, he spent two years perfecting the McNugget recipe. And we all love McNuggets. I don't think anyone doesn't like McNuggets. Uh, even the sauces, he took a long time to come up with. Uh, so the thing he focused was on using uh, the breast and thigh meat uh, of the chicken, and he figured out how it could be pressed and designed into various shapes. So he had to design and um, create these processing machines that were made in Sweden that would cut the chicken specifically. Uh, then the deboning was actually done by hand, if you can believe that. Um, there was tons of people in the plants just to debone chicken. They're not as they weren't as sort of McFrankenstein-y as you might have thought. Then he came up with this uh, tempura batter, which was kind of unique for a fast food item. And because he was a French chef, he had this very strong background in sauces from working all over the world. So he went through hundreds of different creations before he landed on three, hot mustard, barbecue, and sweet and sour. They had some trouble coming up with the determining the right cooking times for the chicken, but they would end up being partially cooked in the factories then flash frozen, sent to the restaurants, and then they would be fried more before serving. And this, I felt stupid about not knowing this, that there are actually four different specific shapes to the McNuggets. They aren't random things. They were designed to be in the shape of a bow tie, a bell, a boot, and a ball. They don't necessarily look like that but that was the whole idea behind it and you know they were meant to be fun but they were more meant to be strategic because the shapes allowed to first be cooked evenly and at the same time and then secondly to dip properly into the sauces um and the, the funniest thing why four shapes is so the mcdonald's producer head said Besides being for fun, they didn't want to go overboard with the fun. They said three would have been too few, five would have been, like, wacky. So you can't argue with that. Okay, the next thing that I found the best of the 1980s in 2020, season two of The Mandalorian. And spoilers, of course, here. But I think with the TV shows, I think there's considered an embargo on spoiler talk. And I think there's an unofficial rule of 72 hours where you keep it to yourself, whether it's reviews or YouTube videos or podcasts or whatever, where you don't go super in depth without giving spoiler warnings. But after that's lifted, it's all free reign. And I'm assuming if you're a fan, you've already watched it. The Mandalorian season one was awesome and so much better than I was expecting. And season two, like, took it to the next level. And I think it's because John Favreau was involved with every episode. He didn't necessarily produce all the episodes. He did at least the first one and the last. No, he didn't even do the last one, but definitely the first one. But he wrote all of it. And this guy has really saved modern pop culture, if you think about it. He's saved Star Wars in a sense. He started the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And The Mandalorian Season 2 just brought things I don't think anyone was expecting. And it was already so good. The fact seeing Boba Fett again, I didn't think we'd necessarily see him. I didn't know he would be a primary character over a couple episodes. Um, I always thought they were always going to tease him and that's not necessarily bring him in or, you know, just because they didn't want to go back to established characters and they're trying to keep inventing their own. But I think at some point they just said, screw it. This is what people have been wanting. However you feel about the new sequel, um, 
I think they didn't want to risk it and just, you know, bring back the things people love, but bring them back in a whole new way. And to see Boba Fett um, sort of redeemed for how easily he was killed off, there's no way they were, you know, when they were making The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi that they were going to anticipate how popular the character of Boba Fett was going to be. But they gave him real like vindication and and established him back as this like badass character again. And now we're gonna get the book of Boba Fett as its own series. I don't know how that's gonna maybe deter from the Mandalorian, but whatever. Like this this stuff is so good, and there's so many great creative people involved that they all stand on their own. And then the fact they here's the spoiler, just in case you haven't seen it. So skip ahead or whatever. Now the fact they brought back Luke Skywalker is insane. I I never thought in a million years they were going to do that. Like I thought it was more about bringing in maybe fringe characters, um, you know, lower level names at best. So to see that last episode when the X-Wing comes in, um, and then Luke comes down the hallway, just destroying everything, just like Vader did in rogue one, Again, Rogue One, I think, not that it's underrated, I think that's one of the best of all Star Wars movies by far. So to see this character who we've only seen from the end of Return of the Jedi and then into um, The Rise of Skywalker and The Last Jedi, we see him a bit at the end of Force Awakens. So we've we've never seen him, you know, in his prime. So as he's coming in in The Mandalorian Season 2, this is him at like almost the height of his powers. So we we get him at his best, which I think no one was ever anticipating. That's why it was so incredible. I had to avoid watching it, or I wasn't going to be watching that last episode till later in the day, and everyone online is freaking out. I'm like, something big's happened. So I thought, oh, it's going to be like Chewbacca will show up or something, and that'll be really cool. But that that's an amazingly powerful episode um, and made this whole season incredible. And I think people are, are again excited more than ever about star wars when they maybe weren't as much before so mandalorian season two of course one of the best things of 2020 and i will finish with one more and this is maybe my favorite thing i researched more and looked into this year you might not think so but it's the story of leisure suit larry the original forbidden video game and i did a whole podcast episode on this and a blog if you want to read it everything 80s podcast.com slash leisure suit larry and if you're not familiar with leisure suit larry this was so tantalizing as a kid and hearing about this game and never playing it and only hearing the rumors of it and it's this adult themed video game and um the character and it was completely body and it was you know you know, you look back now and nothing over the top, but for a kid growing up, it was just mesmerizing. It was one of those word of mouth things that were so powerful in the 1980s. And again, it's relatively tame now, but we didn't know that. So the interesting thing was this story is the backstory of Leisure Suit Larry. And again, like I was learning all this for the first time because no one knew all this stuff when it came out. So definitely didn't play it. I, I knew one person, his dad had it apparently, but he kept it locked up in a desk to play on the Commodore 64. So of course kids are just, you know, wanting to check this out, but never got to. 
the backstory with Leisure Suit Larry was he was this, you know, geek for most of his life, never had really success with girls. He was a computer programmer, had this sort of meaningless existence. He lived with his mother, whatever. Uh, he turns 38, he gets a bit of an epiphany and becomes, you know, more focused on trying to hook up and everything like that. And starts to take over his life and his work suffers. And then he does this whole uprooting his life. He moves to the fictional city of lost wages. Um, and, but he's so to touch. He believes that the seventies style is still in vogue. So he wears this polyester leisure suit and he puts together a look that he thinks is still cool. And the origin story of leisure suit layer leaves him selling his Volkswagen bug. He makes 94 bucks. Um, and then he ends up outside Lefty's Bar, and that's where the very first game, Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards, begins. So that's a fictional backstory, but how this game came together is pretty amazing. So video games in the 80s were all about, you know, epic adventures and quests and heroes and everything like that. The idea with Leisure Suit Larry was he was going to be the complete opposite of this. The idea was to create a very unconventional type of video game where the hero was going to be mocked and ridiculed. You know, there was no saving the princess here or going through quests. Larry, Leisure Suit Larry would be um, adult themed and that was going to separate it from what was seen as everything else being like kiddie games. Um, the whole concept was put together by a guy named Al Lowe. And again, he wanted to create the complete opposite of a GQ model in Larry, um, with the Hawaiian shirt and the gold chain. And again, which is amazing. This was based on a real guy. Um, Lowe worked for Sierra online. If you know your video game history, uh, their video game company from the late seventies, they brought games like King's quest, space quest stuff, stuff like that. Um, when he was working there, he met a salesman who would become the actual influence for Larry. Larry, the salesman who was never named, but it was apparently named Jerry, was always away on sales trips and would brag about the women he got with and everything like this. And the guy was hated by everyone, especially Lowe and all the other game coders. So this Jerry guy never realized he was being laughed at behind his back and would become the influence for Larry. And they had to go with Larry because it seemed too obvious to use the name of Jerry. Um, and they went with Larry Laffer just because again, they thought it was a funny way to sort of mock it and whatever. So when this game launched, it was released on a bunch of systems like the Apple two, um, the PC, DOS, it was on Amiga, it was on the uh, the Tandy, uh, what you know. So it was more of like a PC based game, and it was interesting because it was a text based game, and that's where you would type instructions in. And a lot of these games have existed over the years. The difference with this is that it had graphics, and relatively decent graphics for the time. It used two hundred fifty six colors, which is quite a lot. So. You could actually move him around with the functional keys, which was amazing for like a floppy disk based game. Again, <laughs> depending how old you are, this might not even mean anything to you. The words like floppy disk and all that. But again, this was pretty amazing. And um, there was also like the fact that there was um, sort of skill testing questions, age appropriate questions to prove how old you were to start the game. And they were, I was looking at them like, 
Um, which here, here's one, which U S president was not elected to office, Johnson, Eisenhower, Ford, Cleveland, not, not too many kids would know that. Um, and a few of them get even more inappropriate too. So, um, so it was amazing. Like it had this real gameplay and then it got a little, you know, relatively dark and then inappropriate without going into details and stuff like that. But the thing that made it amazing was this whole game caught on purely by word of mouth. And that is still one of the best ways to advertise. In the 80s, it was the ultimate way to advertise. So when they started, the sales were pretty bad and they only sold around 4,000 copies. So, you know, because it had adult themes, you know, no stores wanted to put it on the shelves. And again, I remember this. I don't, I remember the game and I don't remember any um, video store or, or whatever rental place having it on the shelves. And they sure as hell weren't going to let it rent it out to kids. So it was the lowest first month sales for any product that had ever been released for Sierra Online. And everyone thought they had just wasted like a year and a half of their lives. And then everyone starts talking. And it started by rumors on the playground and in colleges and schools and neighborhood. And the myth of the game grew. Suddenly, Leisure Suit Larry was the hottest thing in video games. And by the end of the year, they had sold 250,000 copies. And again... No store wanted to advertise or promote it, but they were still selling a ton of copies. And then it was getting great reviews uh, from magazines like Computer Gaming World. Um, and the game was touted for having some of the best graphics and best gameplay on games out there. And it actually won um, the best advantage or, advantage or venture or fantasy role-playing game in 1987 that's awarded by the Software Publishers Association. So it's one thing to have hype, but the game actually backed it up. Um, and again, like I knew all about it and the fact that this game was such a massive success is even more interesting to the whole story. So let's wrap it up there. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you like this look back at some of the things I found the most interesting related to the 1980s through 2020. If you want to see more on the blog, everything80spodcast.com. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. I should be there. I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.